welcome to NECC's Navigate podcast, sponsored by NYSERDA and co-organized with Clean Capital. I'm your presenter and Navigate director, Katarina Madeira. In this episode, we'll talk about fundraising, seed and Series A rounds. For that, we have with us Hudson Gilmer from Line Vision, Marnie Levine from Launch New York, Matthew Northern from Prime Impact Fund, and our host, John Powers from Clean Capital. Thank you so much for joining us and for completing the short survey we have in this podcast description. Uh, I'd like to thank Navigate and the New England Clean Energy Council for, for hosting us today. This uh, webinar is being recorded as actually part of a podcast called Experts Only. You can get episodes of Experts Only at Clean Capital's website, cleancapital.com, and we focus on the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. But this conversation is, is unique. We're really going to focus on, because we have such a great panel, the opportunities and experience that they have uh, for folks looking out to raise money. Because fundraising is part of an entrepreneur's daily life. Uh, it's, it's today's startups, ecosystems, funding sources can be public, they can be private, corporate VCs, uh, to venture capital, understanding that space and understanding how to approach it is critical to, to the lifeblood of your company. And we're going to talk through... Uh, some of the best practices in the space, how to think about it, and how to approach it. We have an incredible panel today, and I'll introduce them uh, all here in a, in a moment uh, through our, our first question. So our panel today, we have three amazing speakers. We have Matthew Norton, who's the Managing Director for Prime Impact Fund, uh, Marnie Levine, who is the head of Launch New York, and Hudson Gilmer, who uh, is the CEO of Line Vision. So I'm going to start off in this first round of questions and, and talk to the, uh, each individual and have them sort of give a little background on themselves as they're talking about uh, what they bring to this conversation. And I'm going to start off with you, Matthew. Uh, Matthew, you're the Managing Director of the Prime Impact Fund, and you have a really dynamic background, uh, both as an investor, you serve on many boards in the clean tech space. You know, first, how did you get interested in venture capital, and then what brought your career into clean tech? Yeah, so it's funny. I, I, I never thought I would be a venture investor. I, I thought that VCs uh, were a little lower on the authenticity and vulnerability scale uh, than I might want to be. Uh, but I ran this company called Lux Research that was the largest uh, tech analyst firm focused on energy and environment, was eventually acquired by a private equity firm. And with my hat on as a, kind of a leader of analysts, uh, I saw a large amount of venture money coming into energy and environment in the mid-2000s. Um, and I, I sort of got looked to uh, as a source of advice around what might be coming around the corner. And I found myself recruited by some VC firms. I went to one called Venrock that's arguably the oldest venture capital firm, originally the venture arm of the Rockefeller family in the 1930s. Uh, and the initial investor, an initial investor in companies ranging from Apple to Intel to 3Com. Um, and I had a, an interesting kind of tale of two cities experience with the firm. Uh, colleagues and I built a portfolio of nine energy tech companies uh, over one and a half fund cycles, about five years. And on one hand, that portfolio did extraordinarily well. Uh, my personal biggest hit was Nest, the smart thermostat company okay. that Google acquired for $3.2 billion, less than a year and a half after we invested. Uh, had another company reach a similar I level of valuation. There the day before they closed. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long story. We'll talk about some other time. All right. Good to know. Uh, I had another company reach a sort of similar level called Lucid Motors that is a Tesla challenger focused on the Asian market uh, that took a control investment from the Saudi public investment firm that got it also into that kind of multi-billion dollar club. Uh, an interesting point is that uh, and luxury EV focused on the Asian market means all the cool stuff is in the back. Because if you're in China and you own the car, you have a driver. So the cockpit experience is less important to you than the rear seat experience. But I was also really frustrated uh, because what I wanted to do was to fund true breakthroughs of climate, you know, companies that could be historically significant and planetarily impactful, uh, you know, as meaningful today in innovation as the steam engine was in the 19th century or the photovoltaic in the 20th, at their earliest stages, when these are really conceptual companies that are at risk of dying on the vine. And I found that was really hard to do, uh, and for very good reason, sort of conventional venture and even angel investors you know, have risk reward profiles that just discourage them a bit uh, from taking these early stage risks in a field that doesn't have the kind of exit model that say biotech does. Right. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, I guess 2014, uh, a brilliant woman named Sarah Carney, who was at MIT, had a, a vision for how to do this differently by tapping capital that was inherently structurally more risk tolerant and patient 
from investors who want to build really big and important and enduring companies, but care about the endpoint that they achieve, in this case, net greenhouse gas emissions. And we started Prime to do that. We started out investing in companies through syndication without a fund. Uh, we did that for three years from 2015 through 18 and backed 10 businesses with about $24 million, all seed stage, largest investment with 5 million, smallest with 500K, uh, with 54 different uh, impact investors participating. And a couple of years ago, we started our first proper fund, Prime Impact Fund, $50 million seed vehicle. We're eight investments into a portfolio that'll probably be around 15. Uh, and our criteria are ones that are probably very aligned with people on this call, you know, gigaton scale greenhouse gas emissions, you know, appropriateness for our unique color of capital uh, and a clear path to get to, uh, you know, self-sufficiency and scale after our capital. Interesting. Uh, more to come on on Prime and what you guys are doing. Um, next, I want to go to Marty Levine from, from Launch New York. Marty, uh, who's here in Buffalo with me, uh, the center of the universe. Uh, you have a PhD in, in neuroscience. How did you go from that to uh, founding a venture organization like Launch New York? Yeah, yeah it's a, a journey like all of us. So great to hear Matthew first. Um, and uh, so actually, I was a neuroscience undergrad at University of Rochester and then went the route of clinical psychology uh, for my doctoral work. And it was really in that doctoral experience that I'm traveling that road that many of our communities are trying to help others travel, which is, yes, I'm in an academic program, but the reality is what I'm doing could bring incredible innovation solutions that change people's lives to the world if we right. can get those investments out of the lab. So that's really how I got started um, on my entrepreneurial journey is we took the behavioral science work that I was doing with various uh, medical uh, patient populations. Um, we were working with all the way from people trying to stop smoking to people trying to manage their asthma, their um, COPD, whatever the case. So I did a lot of work at that time trying to bring our product actually to the market. And so started businesses in what you normally consider flyover territory in upstate New York. Uh, particularly in Rochester. So I had the great fortune of being with a team, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do today. So this was all, um, dare I say, back in the 90s, <laughs> yeah. when you could go public. So I actually went public with two different health IT companies, one actually based out of New York City, ultimately, um, back in the 90s. And so wild ride, uh, those IPOs were fast and furious at the time. Uh, one was part of the dot-com boom and bust, um, so I was doing the road warrior thing and building those companies and I was doing more of the product side and, uh, but I had a terrific team of people who know how to raise those dollars. So what I realized was that I really wanted to get off the road and be back in upstate New York and that we had incredible innovation, but we really had very little, uh, runway to, uh, take those innovations to the marketplace from our hometowns in Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse. So much like Matthew said, you know, the option for invention, inventions and inventors, they're dying on the vine or they're leaving town. So really from a bit more of an academic um, and economic development standpoint, I started uh, on the journey at University of Buffalo after I came back upstate from my wild.com ride and um, realized life was very different, a lot of risk aversion in these communities. So Launch New York really was spawned because of the need to help inventions get to the marketplace and create economic impact, uh, jobs and wealth in upstate New York. So Launch New York, we uh, conceived of it, not just out of our own heads, but really looking at neighboring states like Pennsylvania and Ohio with incredible, what they call venture development organizations. So in 2012, we launched uh, our organization called Launch New York. We're actually a private nonprofit. And we are mostly privately funded, uh, but we were able to start providing free mentoring. And now, uh, as of 2018, we have the most active seed fund in New York State, funding companies uh, typically up to four times per month. Uh, and that started, you know, in 16. But now what we've seen is we have a steady stream of companies. We've served over 1,100 our portfolio now in uh, you know a little over three years has uh, about 56, 57 companies. Um, we frankly are investing so quickly, it's a little hard to keep up. Um, but I have a team of mentors that helps us keep track and not only prepare these companies for what we'll be talking about today in terms of pitching, um, but actually doing the portfolio management. So um, our goal is obviously to see these products reach the market, 
We are a clean tech incubator through New York State's Energy Research and Development Authority. Uh, and so we have um, an incredible group of companies from informatics products to renewables. Um, you know, it's really amazing, but I personally have been driven by the fact that I love this region. I want innovation to make a difference in everyone's life and in our environment. And Launch New York is here to really help when the companies are in the sandbox. Yeah, and to, to add just additional color for on some of the great stuff Marty's doing, you know, being here in Buffalo and, and witnessing sort of the resurgence of the, the area because of the ecosystem that's been developed by Launch New York, 43 North, and some of the other initiatives here that, you know, have, have public backing, but also a lot of private capital moving here for the first time in, in decades, uh, really creating a, a new resurgence. One of the reasons I moved, moved home. So uh, next, I want to go to our, our third panelist, uh, Hudson Gomer, who's the CEO of Line Vision. Hudson sort of brings a unique perspective to this conversation. The first two speakers uh, have the money. Hudson actually went out and needed to get funding, uh, launching a company. So, you know, first of all, Hudson, can you sort of step back and talk about your career leading up to, to starting Line Vision? Sure. Thanks, John. Happy to do that. Um, I think there's kind of a theme developing here where these are not linear paths, um, right. and, and I'm no exception. Um, so I actually started my career in the telecom industry and uh, was with AT&T and over time helped AT&T start businesses in Canada, the first competitive uh, telecom company in Canada, actually just around the corner from uh, where you guys are up in Toronto. Um, and then uh, was part of a team that created the first pan-European telecom joint venture in Amsterdam. Um, but I'd always been fascinated by energy and really kind of took a conscious decision to say, I want to go back to school full time. I want to do my MBA and, and focus that time on making the, the transition into the energy industry. Um, was very lucky to be at MIT Sloan during kind of the early years of the Energy Club, um, where Ernie Moniz, who went on to be um, Obama's Secretary of Energy, was our faculty chair. Um, just a really uh, rich time to be there and, and, and learn the industry. Um, one of the classes I took was called eLab, where we worked with a local startup, in this case, um, Enernoc, pre-IPO. Um, so many of you may be familiar with them. They're a leader in demand response and subsequently sold to NLX. Um, and um, that business model really kind of stuck with me of being able to leverage analytics and data, meter data in their case, basically to create a virtual peaking power plant and create a much more cost efficient solution to traditional hardware type solutions in the energy space. Um, so I went on from there to join a startup called EnvaPower, which was the first company to really create predictive analytics for wholesale energy market participants. Um, so we built fundamental models to forecast regional energy prices for places like PJM and New England ISO right. um, and, and sell to traders. Um, I was successful in, in really ramping up revenues there. We sold that business within about 18 months um, to a company called Genscape, um, who also is primarily focused on serving market participants, but had some really cool sensor technologies, which allowed those traders to quote unquote spy on the grid and see which power plants are running and which ones unexpectedly trip offline. Um, and, and we had a great business. Business and, and it, it continues to be a great business. Um, but at a certain point, about five years ago, I, I really felt like rather than just providing data to traders to help them make more money capitalizing on the inefficiencies of the grid, I wanted to solve the inefficiency of the, of the grid. Um, right. and, and so that was really where Line Vision was born. Um, we incubated that business for about three years within Genscape. Our, our, our mission and, and our focus is on using non-contact sensors and analytics to monitor transmission lines, monitor overhead lines. And it allows us to do three important things. Um, one is we can 
unlock up to 40% additional capacity on existing lines. So essentially we can build transmission using sensors and analytics at a unit cost of less than 5% of the cost of, of building the old way. The second thing, and, and that's important of course, because it allows us to remove what is arguably the biggest barrier towards greater renewable penetration in places like upstate New York, where you're seeing more and more wind connected to the grid and a lot of wind driven congestion and curtailment. Um, the second thing that we can do is detect anomalies and alert utilities to situations that may represent risks to either the reliability of the grid or to public safety. And you only have to think about uh, the wildfires and PG&E's bankruptcy, um, which is arguably a direct result of unmonitored um, grid um, and, um, and the, the problems that resulted there. And then the third thing we can do with that same hardware package, the same sensor technology, is um, monitor aging equipment, monitor the condition of aging assets. Um, so we, we took that business, we spun it out from Genscape almost two years ago to the day. Um, we, we have since done three um, investment rounds, first a seed round in May of 2018, then um, a, a follow-on Series A, and then uh, fortunately back in December we raised a convertible note, um, obviously pre pre COVID. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy to get into details, share the scars, and uh, <laughs> uh, all the mistakes we made along the way. Yeah, Austin, that's great. And and just, I'm going to put just the clean capital story out here as well, um, and I'll try to to uh, put this into our some of my questions a little bit, but. I also sort of come from the position you do, Hudson. I was in, on the policy side. I served as, as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer before helping to launch clean capital. We saw a need to bring uh, more efficient capital into the clean energy market and launched a, a, a fintech platform to help us acquire. We now have 180 megawatts, but we went through the experience of uh, a, a, a seed round, a Series A. We received a convertible note from uh, from BlackRock, we've sort of taken all uh, different steps of funding as we've grown here over the last um, the last four years. Uh, it has been a fascinating fascinating ride. So for much of the audience, I've, we've been in your seats trying to figure out how to how to approach and make these asks. And I want to use that to sort of talk about the first question. Um, and for folks that are putting in questions, we'll come back to those in a little bit. We've got a couple of rounds here, then we'll we'll uh, we'll address those. Uh, the first question is for for. For Marnie, um, this this round is really focused on what's the right time for a startup to approach uh, investors. And Marnie, you work with a variety of companies at different scales. You know, how do you coach those companies on when they should start approaching investors? Yeah, this question is so important to think about because um, most investors will tell you you often get one shot. First impressions are lasting impressions. So we you know, balance the need to practice getting in front of investors and, you know, your elevator pitch all the way to a full pitch deck uh, to, you know, really preparing. So what Launch does, and again, we've incorporated best practice models from around the country and really around the globe using business model canvas. So our mentors, uh, we use a one-on-one -on -one method of interacting with companies. I know there are some terrific programs that many of the listeners today might be involved with, like i that the National Science Foundation offers. But um, we think a combination of accelerator programs that are intensive preparation for doing a pitch um, is you know, very important. But we also think that uh, getting exposure to seeing what a pitch looks like, looking at the materials, and working with a mentor one-on-one -on -one so your journey can travel as quickly or slowly as it's going to travel. Um, so for us, we use business model canvas as the basis. And then uh, the pitch deck itself, we really are working our companies towards that endpoint of you are pitch ready. Uh, so I do think that you have to have your story straight. You need to know what your business model is. Um, most of the investors will want to hear about how you have qualified your market, obviously. Um, so I do think that while we use really efficient tools like the business model canvas and uh, a standard pitch deck of, you know, less than 20 slides, 
um, there is a lot that goes into it. And so I certainly encourage our companies to take the time and practice with friendly audience who will not hold you to that first pitch because you know right. it will not be perfect. <laughs> right. That's good feedback. And Matthew, you've seen hundreds of pitches, I imagine, now in the, the clean tech space and even prior to the clean tech space. You know, when you're when you're looking at companies that are coming through the door, you know, what criteria are you looking for? Let's sort of start off sort of the seed space. Like when, when a company's coming mm -hmm. in and they're, you know, either sending their deck ahead of time or coming in and sort of making the pitch live in your head, like what are your certain boxes that you're checking the, the key criteria of what they're bringing to you? Yeah. Let me give some context on, on the numbers. The short story is we're looking for extraordinary people. Right. Uh, where we are confident that, you know, man, that, that, that woman, that man's going to push out the dome of the universe may not be sure it's this venture. Maybe it's their second or their third thing, but a person we want to be in the business of. And I think that's, pretty common with seed stage investors. The math's tough, right? Uh, you know, we have a, a, a universe of companies, you know, that we've tracked since inception of the fund two years ago, that's about 4,500. It turns over by about 2,000 a year, you know, of kind of proto companies through series B in energy, ag, waste, and water. Uh, so that's our starting number. We take on average about five pitches a week. So let's call that 250. So there's a 10X decrease from companies whose materials we look at or we're aware of or somebody's you know, recommended them to us to entrepreneurs we talk to. Uh, we have an investment advisory committee that's you know, good kind of- Can I ask you a question? In that phase that you're screening before you get to those five a week? Yep. If, I, if I'm pitching prime, like how long yeah, yeah, yeah. does the screening process to be? Uh, pretty quick. Uh, you know, someone sends us a deck or, you know, we yeah. become aware of something from one of our pipeline partners through Greentown Labs or Cyclotron Road or Activate or something like that. Uh, you know, there's a pretty quick heuristic exercise yeah. for our investment criteria of gigaton scale climate impact. And is it kind of appropriate stage wise? Is there evidence of a real hard tech advance that happens pretty quickly? Uh, and there are lots and lots of companies. I mean, the vast majority of them we look at that are really interesting and really compelling. It's not a great match for us. Uh, yeah. You know, for example, a company that's, you know, optimizing power electronics for lower power draw on a phone like this one could be really interesting and could get to market really quickly, but it just sort of may not address a big enough envelope of emissions to be relevant for our mission, maybe relevant yeah. to other people's missions. So anyway, uh, you know, 250 a year pitches, uh, we have an investment advisory committee that's a good indicator of whether we're excited about something. Typically four or five companies go in front of that quarterly. So now we've had another 10x decrease you know, from maybe 250 right. pitches to maybe 2025. 20, and we make around five investments a year. So maybe one out of five of those. Uh, the challenge, right, as a seed stage investor that, you know, it's hard to communicate to people is that you can't assess a business by its plan. Because even great companies pivot usually multiple times. And, you know, every pitch has the same financial projections at the end of it going nicely upward on a hockey stick, right. which almost never happens, right? So prima facie, evaluating the plan is theater. It's useful theater. It's a mechanism by which you can get to know the entrepreneur and understand how they respond to challenge and how they think through problems. But the actual content of the plan, I think a savvy seed stage investor doesn't pay a lot of attention to. What you're looking for, and it's so hard to describe, right? Because it's like, you know, the Supreme Court's, uh, you know, judgment on whether content meets community standards or not. It's I know it when I see it, right? Um, is that you're looking for this extraordinary spark. And if you're an early stage investor, we've made eight investments in our fund. Six out of eight of those CEOs, their first job was CEO. Before that, they were a grad student or a postdoc. So right. how do you show that you're this extraordinary person uh, when you're popping out of a lab. The analogy I think of actually comes from wildlife, right? So uh, if you've ever been to like the African savanna and you know you see gazelles, uh, you know, they're herd animals and there's usually this kind of behavior where there's this kind of circling happening because nobody wants to be at the edge of the herd because if you're at the edge, you get picked off by a predator. But there's this weird thing that happens where if you go out and observe some you know, big pack of animals like this, you'll see a small number of them, usually two or three, deliberately sort of go off from the edge of the herd and do a behavior called stotting where they jump up and down. And it correlates that they actually do this more often when they are downwind of the lions. And the idea is that biologically, that's an unfakeable signal. What they're doing is going out and saying, I am so fast <laughs> and so quick 
that I will jump up and down to give you a head start. It gives you absolutely no incentive to try to catch me. It's a losing game. I think, you know, entrepreneurs that are really compelling find some way to stop. And how they do it differs. Sometimes yeah. it's some extraordinary technical achievement that's written up in nature that is punching above their weight and beyond what you would expect of someone at this stage of their lives. That's the extraordinary thing. Sometimes it's the advisor that is on board who is the industry luminary who should know better, right? And has put, you know, her or his name behind this venture. Sometimes it's the angel investor who's, you know, a check writer who came in way before you would expect anyone would that confers credibility. But there's some element that makes something just stand apart from the mass uh, and show you that you're in the presence of greatness. So what uh, just follow on question. You mentioned in there a couple of your feeder groups, right? Greentown Labs, yep. uh, the folks in Cal California, Cycloton wrote. So yep. if, if I'm a, a emerging company really wanting to get in front of, a firm like Prime, you know, what are some of the best avenues to get my initial deck your way? So, you know, we, we do look and programmatically, I think it's rare among investors at our stage, uh, you know, at all the companies that come out of these, what we call pipeline partners, we have 80 of them. And it's really every Amazing. incubator, accelerator, business plan competition, university entrepreneurship center. And they send the structured information about their companies at least annually. So we see those. But just the sheer power of that math, right? In a small team, if there are thousands of companies to look right. at, you know, and then you've got these two 10x down selections, the things that we're really excited about. I think it's true as it is anything else in life, right? You know, if you're trying to, uh, you know, get into the job or reach the customer or whatever else, there's nothing that uh, is both more effective and demonstrates your power as an entrepreneur than some kind of warm intro. And, you know, that's not... One of the things we're really sensitive to, you know, if you look in our portfolio, three out of our eight uh, entrepreneurs are, you know, women and or people of color who are generally underrepresented in venture. And there's a bad aspect to pattern matching and an old boys network that is really unhelpful. Uh, and we're sensitive to that, right? There's some cases where people may not be in an entrepreneurial center. They may be, you know, in the Midwest, uh, you know, or in some other place that just doesn't benefit from the automatic network that you get in the Valley or the Bay. And we try right. to proactively reach out to entrepreneurs in these places, but there is real information content in whether a CEO is able to wrangle their way into you. It's predictive of their ability to recruit people that are a few steps beyond what they might deserve or land customers that are a few steps earlier than they might normally be able to prove. Uh, there's real data there. Right. Interesting. Um, Hudson, so I want you to talk a little bit about, I'd love to hear about your experience uh, when you first approached investors and like, when did you know you were ready and what were those sort of first set of meetings like? Yeah. So, so we had a bit of a unique situation in that we were a spin out and not a startup. Um, and, and so right. we had um, gone to the former parent company and said, Hey, you know, because we're serving utilities, we think this is a fundamentally different market. We think it has to be a separate company. And uh, the old adage, be careful what you wish for uh, certainly held here because the former parent company said, okay, fine. You have until X date and uh, either you're going to have funding raised or we're, we're cutting off <laughs> the business. Right. So, so that kind of dictated our timetable um, and um, kick you out of the nest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Which sometimes you need. Um, yeah, right. But I guess, you know, what I would say as, as more of a general comment is I think in this world, there is way too much focus on the pitch and on the pitch deck. Um, and, and there's almost a presumption that an entrepreneur should be working on their pitch deck when in fact, in many cases, they really need to be making sure that they have the boxes checked that investors like Matt um, are, are looking for. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I would encourage, you know, to your question of when is the timing right, that you find mentors, you find coaches who really are not helping you coach through your presentation, through your pitch, mm -hmm. but through the question right. of, do you have the right team? Do you have a, um, a technology that's really differentiated? Um, are you solving a real problem in a big market? Um, and, and do you have a business model that is sustainable? 
um, and and really identify, okay, if the answers to any of those are are not an emphatic yes, you're not ready. Um, right. and, and, you know, buy yourself a little more time um, to answer those questions b before you move forward. When we did our first our first raise, we spent a lot of time having conversations where we didn't ask for money or didn't have, just to find and we tweaked our business model so much from those early conversations and that advice we got from mentors in the industry that when we finally did go out, we were much more baked and ready to go uh, to get it get it done. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so we were kicked out of the nest, and and I'll be honest, those first meetings were pretty ugly, um, yeah. and it's partly because um, I certainly didn't have the pedigree of 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 talking to VCs. Um, we also had this kind of awkward situation where the former parent company felt like they wanted to be involved and have some ownership in the process, um, and I look back at those old pitch decks and am quite horrified. Um, and I remember actually coming to Matthew, who's a friend, and and uh, asking him for advice. And he looked and he said, um, yeah, we don't look and smell like what VCs, they have a quite rigid kind of uh, sense of what they're looking for and what the cap table ought to look like. And and we were this foreign object that just did not fit. <laughs> um, and and so it was, it was kind of some painful lumps that we took there. Um, but I, I also, you know, just will echo Marnie's um, Can I ask you a question? Did you adjust after yeah. that? Did you adjust from that conversation? Well, we so? did, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, we ended up just totally recalibrating and saying, okay, initially we thought we were VC material, kind of uh, yeah. Series A material, and we realized that we really needed to do a seed round first um, and, and lay the foundation that ended up being a much more productive path to go down. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like we, we had a similar experience. We spent a lot of time in the clean tech space originally trying to raise our series A and there was a challenge to get over a bump of what people understanding what we were doing. But when we took our model to the FinTech community that just saw clean energy as a new asset, the, the meetings were dramatically different. We, we were educating them on solar that got what we were doing on FinTech. Um, and you know, it was just, here's, here's why this asset class is important and, and valuable to you. And that's where we ended up raising our series A from mostly. Um, so looking at, so I want to get to the, the questions that uh, people have provided here in a second. I've got one more, um, one more set for the, the panel, then we'll open it up and really focusing on, you know, after getting that first meeting or in that first meeting, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the mechanics of those meetings so people can be be ready and you know Matthew so for you what does a successful pitch look like from the investor side um, and you know what are you looking in that first pitch and you know can you tell those folks that are practiced or those folks that are coming in you know pretty cold yeah it's interesting um, I would would boldface underline and italicize Hudson's points that a kind of amateur set of slides that have a real innovation and an extraordinary techno-economic analysis and indications of customer demand go much, much further with our team than the super polished presentation of something that's half-baked. Yeah. Uh, and we do actually see a significant amount of the latter. One of the downsides of pitch culture, right? Of, you know, sort of the post-Y Combinator age of startups is that there's a template and there's a template that's pretty easy to follow. And there are a lot of service providers that can make something uh, you know, walk like a duck and quack like a duck, but, you know, it may be a gazelle. Um, right. So, you know, what what's success? I think success is defined really by, you know, at least one person on our team and usually all of us leaning forward. Uh, and there is a, a, a lower bar to pass. Like if, you know, ideas aren't well, well thought out and well communicated, uh, regardless of whether they look polished or not, that's a huge red flag. But I think, you know, what we really respond to is folks who are showing up and teaching us something about the nature of a problem to be solved, why past attempts have not been successful, you know, why this attempt meets a customer need or hits a figure of merit or passes a techno-economic bar in a way that other things have not. Um, it's not, again, the specifics of the plan. When anyone shows us, you know, a sort of Gantt chart or a series of revenue projections, that's, that, that's important maybe to have. It's a good idea to know what the going in expectations are, but we're not evaluating that. We are evaluating the rigor and depth of the thinking. To give you an example, right, you know, there's um, 
a company we're looking at now, it's an ag tech company, I won't go into details, but you know, why is it compelling? It's crazy seed stage, you know, directly out of a university more or less. But what's compelling is that they have deeply thought through techno-economics uh, and what it would take for, in this case, individual farmers to adopt their technology. And that doesn't just mean, you know, why it's good. It means somebody's got to maintain this thing and keep putting in new tanks of XYZ every X months. Who does that? Is it on a maintenance schedule that's similar to something else that's on the farm? How will you ensure this? Where does the physical space for this asset go? Does someone put it by the barn? Do they put it where the tractors are? This very kind of, you know, well thought out, deeply informed ahas that we, you know, would normally be asking the questions, here someone's preempting them. And the combination of that, and in this case, some early customer indication, they've been able to convince, you know, a grower in uh, uh, Southern California to take a gamble on this. And, you know, the reasons for that, who knows, maybe that person is someone's, you know, hairdresser's uncle's best friend. You know, we don't know, but the fact that they found a way to do it is itself prima facie evidence that these people, you know, are doers, that they can make right. things happen. Uh, and that's where we're leaning forward. In contrast, you know, there's one that I see right in front of me, that's a pitch my colleagues are gonna take uh, next week, where my, uh, uh, my our associate Michael Campos just sent around the slides. And man, it looks amazingly beautiful. It's crazy well-designed. Clearly a graphic designer was here. Right. And it looks like yet another attempt without much differentiation. Uh, in this case, it's in wind, uh, you know, to get wind farm owners to adopt something that uh, will cause changes to turbines and therefore impact their bankability and their insurability. And it doesn't address those questions. It seems to dodge them. Right. So all the gloss in the world there is not detracting from the fact that, man, the rigor of the thinking is just not well, well articulated here. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm going to jump into the, we've got such great questions coming in. I'm going to sort of jump ahead a little bit. Uh, but I'm going to, Marnie, put this first one towards you uh, because you sort of your, your role with Launch New York. And we've got a really interesting question about how do accelerators such as Cleantech Open benefit startup companies? I, I think an intensive experience where you're working in a very uh, methodical way through what essentially ends up being a business model canvas kind of um, rubric is really powerful. And so we tend to find that uh, our newest, our, our youngest, uh, most inexperienced, no matter of what age entrepreneurs do very well going into an intensive experience like that, because many times if they've not been through another round of a startup, they don't realize everything we've been talking about here today. And right. so they tend to focus on one aspect of the business or another, particularly in the clean tech arena, we see that you know a lot of people are driven by sort of the social impact, environmental impact, and they haven't thought through all these operational issues. Uh, they just see that the, the goal itself is what's most important. So what we tend to do is try to see if we can match companies up with those experiences and then have side by side the actual one-on-one -on -one mentorship as well. And we see that as companies progress, normally what happens is we start with companies who have one to two, maybe three founders, who generally really do not have substantial background in starting a business, um, particularly in <laughs> more sophisticated areas like clean tech. So we need to help them carry the water while they're the ones in charge, while they haven't really gotten anyone else to love their baby, so to speak. Right. And then as they go stream, what we're doing right now, we have a particular hardware software company where we've, we're helping them with board development. And we're bringing uh, into the fold individuals who have experience in name brand recognition. They usually start facing difficult decisions at that time about, do I give some equity to this person? Does this person actually invest in the company? But accelerators can often be a wonderful place to meet those individuals. Uh, and now many of our companies, even uh, based in Western New York, they will go to the East Coast, they will go out to Colorado to actually be part of an incubator. And we really promote that. Uh, I will admit it's difficult if you're home with a family and you have responsibilities of that sort to be able to take sort of three months to go do that. But I would uh, argue that your network development is really powerful in addition to the intense focus on you know, have you really evaluated your market opportunity? Have you really built out that operational model? Um, right. All of that, very powerful. 
Excellent. I'm going to go next to Matthew, then to Hudson, two separate questions. And Matthew, this is a pretty one-on-one uh, -on -one question, but I think it, it would be good to highlight. Can you just quickly explain the difference between seed and Series A? Mm. Uh, you know, it's a moving target, right? Um, right? You know, think about it in politics and that, you know, far left at one point, you know, might be center left in another time frame. Uh, you know, typically, I, I think the 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 distinction is is not that significant uh, you know and often there are you know there there are two million dollar series a rounds and there are 10 million dollar seed rounds you know what does that right. tell you uh, i think that the difference line is that a seed usually has a lot more uncertainty uh that could be team is incomplete that could be you know technology only demonstrated at kind of a bench level not anything more than that uh, you know, it could be uh, that there hasn't been any customer engagement at all, that it's a purely technical team, you know, one, some or all of those things. Uh, I think in a Series A, it's, we, we've got a, a full featured plan. There aren't holes. Right. And when we invest in a seed round, which is what most of our investments are, a big component of that seed is figuring out what are the milestones to achieve that would enable the Series A. And, you know, usually our CEOs that we back are very... Uh, rigorous and deliberate about this themselves, but we try to help them do that to really enumerate and start every board meeting with here are the four things that we have to do to reach a value inflection milestone where we can raise the Series A from an outside lead at a higher valuation. Um, hmm. Here's how we do it. Right. Oh, that's interesting. And then a B is basically taking that proof of concept now and scaling it. Uh, and adding fuel to fire. Hopefully. I think the difference between an A and a B is even more arbitrary than the difference between yeah. a seed and an A. But yeah, I think the real distinction comes from when you graduate to a different class of investor, to people who don't call themselves venture capital, but call them growth equity. What's the difference between that? I would think about, um, oh, I don't know, what's a good one? Uh, you know, Uber, right? You know, where Uber is a seed when it's an idea. Yeah. Uber is a series A when there's a clear plan and the goal is to make it work in New York. And the Series B is when, yep, it works in New York. Now we just want to throw fuel on the fire to make it work in Chicago and L.A. and Shanghai and yeah. uh, Amsterdam, right? Um, that's the progression I think of that. That's great. Uh, now, Hudson, uh, an interesting question came in about, you know, the, so can you speak to, and maybe from your experience or maybe more, more broadly here, but, you know, what's needed at sort of the seed stage for a hardware or hardware integrated company so they can demonstrate um, customer demand really when you're thinking sort of the chicken before the egg situation, right? It's hard to really get the, build the customer demand or the, or the, or the customer solution uh, when you're still trying to build the hardware out. So, you know, from your experience, like what was needed, and you, it's a little bit different because you're, you're rolling out of a, a broader company, but, you know, how did you sort of overcome that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you touched on it. Um, you know, we we were able to do a lot of the de-risking of the technology and development of the technology while we were incubating the business um, within the former company. And so, you know, we yeah. didn't really need the seed funding for that. Um, maybe just quickly back to the kind of seed Series A distinction. I think I think to build on on Matt's comment. Um, the type of investor and level of sophistication I think is more important than what you call it. And so there's a lot of seeds where it's angels and friends and family um, who, um, you know, I think the, the big kind of distinction is as soon as you bring on institutional money, the, the level of diligence that's required um, is is another level. And so that that to me is is more important. Um, but, but back to your question, um, I mean, when I look, we, we work out of Greentown Labs, and and there are a lot of hardware companies there. Um, who, oh, did you come out of Greentown Labs? We're we're still headquartered in oh, Greentown. Oh, you are. That's great. That's um, great. Not physically That's these days, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, and it's it's a tremendous resource and and community. Um, but uh, a lot of companies will seek um, grant funding uh, for those initial hardware prototype developments. Um, and, and there are plenty of paths for that in order for them to get to a point where they can make the ask um, rather than using say seed funding for that. And I'll ask Marty and Matthew, if there's anything you want to weigh in on that specific question, because it's, it's unique to clean, well, not unique to clean tech, but it's definitely one of the challenges in clean tech, right? Or folks want to spin out a what they think is a great hardware, uh, but have yet to to prove it. So, any, any insights? I would, to, just, 
Okay. Yeah, I would just continue to say that, you know, anybody listening in on this, um, pursuing the non-diluted grant funding is crucial. And what we're seeing during COVID is a lot of our companies who were able to get those kind of dollars, particularly where it may be supporting, you know, some of the hardware development, um, as well as the software, they, they're able to continue their work at this time, which is crucial. So, um, you know, I, I think you have to be more creative and nimble. Um, and I know certainly we've looked at Prime uh, as our companies are going downstream with significant capital expenditures. You know, who even wants to support that? So once you move from the grants that can help you do that, who else is going to assist? We provide what I call small but mighty dollars, typically convertible debt note. Um, so I, I do think that seed stage really proves the grit of these entrepreneurs. And so there's some great combination of I, I am going to keep pursuing this and I'm going to be coachable um, and, and I will find, you know, prime at the right time. Um, but having, you know, groups like a launch New York that can help you with all those touch points. So I, I just think it is very complex and we do have right. a number of investors who want nothing to do with the hardware play. Could, Marnie, can you for going back to one on one sake here, can you just explain what a convertible note is? Sure. So, you know, a convertible debt note essentially is debt, but it's anticipating that it will convert to equity. So we have had to play a lot of different games with this from the standpoint that, you know, where is that showing up on your balance sheet and, you know, how is it being treated? At, at this point, typically a launch New York uh, debt note is going to look like this. Uh, we're generally in our first investment in a company, we're providing up to $50,000 as that convertible debt note which essentially says you have, generally speaking, 24 months maturity. We really right. don't want you paying this back to us. What we want is for you in that time frame to move into a series A. So you move into a priced round. In that priced round, our $50,000 plus what is typically six to 8% interest rate will convert into that equity position. We generally also do have a 20% discount as well at that time. And we often will have, most times we'll have a market cap so that we're essentially getting the value of coming in very early. At the same time, I would tell you our whole goal of using a convertible debt note is we don't want to spend a ton of time deciding what you're worth when you don't even have the MVP, the minimum viable right. product typically. So that, that really has become um, very helpful. We are seeing interesting movement into these safe instruments and KISS instruments, um, but we find for our marketplace that the convertible debt note is the most friendly today for the investors uh, who might come in alongside with us. We have a significant co-investment, about 15X our dollars. It's friendly, generally speaking, to the company, and it, it works very well for the downstream investment as round. Great. Um, um, I want to a quick one for you, Matthew. Someone asked, you know, based on some of your, your earlier comments, how willing are sort of seed or series A investors willing to look at, for instance, like an executive summary doc versus slides? Just going to mechanics for a second. So it always depends. And one of the challenges, right, I'm sure Hudson, you know, will be rolling his eyes at this one, uh, of getting feedback on pitches is that if you ask 10 people, you'll get 10 incompatible Right. <laughs> you know, idiosyncrasies are the things they want to see. So I don't think there's a great answer. I'll tell you that personally in our team, we can't stand exec summaries. People send a one page teaser and A, it's like words, words, paragraphs. Ugh. Right. And then secondly, it's uh, it's like, what what's the intent? Uh, you know, why, why send a page? If I'm interested, I'm going to want to know a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so we tend to look for decks as the first uh, point of contact and think that one page teasers are useless. I'm sure if we polled a dozen seed stage investors, half of them would tell you the opposite. So this, this a re, they're saying, what if it's a three to five pager instead of one pager? Is it still too many words? Oh God, now it's both not a slide deck and longer. So please, no. <laughs> Good, that's great. Good feedback. Uh, I'll, agree. I'll agree on that one. I, if you're going to do an executive summary, one, two pages max, um, because of the volume we handle, I actually kind of like the executive summary, it doesn't, you know, you don't worry about the fact that it's, you know, huge attachment. Um, and so for us, it is efficient. So we do tell every company you need to have an executive summary. We require it to apply to our fund and you need to have a pitch deck and you really need to have multiple pitch decks depending yeah. on your audience. When I, when I was in the military, um, someone had taught me a really early emailing lesson that 
I was emailing multiple steps up the chain of command to a, a multiple star uh, individual, and they said short and sweet because no one that is that busy has time to read it, read a novel, right? So keep it short and sweet and targeted. Um, so um, I want to go back. So we've a lot of amazing questions coming in. We've got some limited time. I do want to th talk for a second. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of that first pitch, right? Getting in the door, having that first pitch. But there, you know, that is only the beginning. You're going to have uh, dozens, uh, if you're lucky, uh, with lots of no's, and you'll get a couple of yeses. You know, but let's talk for a second about that next stage. So, you know, what should a what should an entrepreneur expect? You know, when they walk out of a meeting with, we'd like to learn more. Like, what's what's sort of the next step? And uh, I'm going to start off with Matthew, and then Hudson. I'd like to hear about your experience and sort of prepping for that. Yeah, I. Um... Look, you know, in, in most cases, unless you're pitching to an angel, um, people don't make decisions unilaterally, right? They're part of a partnership, right. they're part of a group. Um, and I think even with angels, right, there may be an investment committee of the spouse. Um, so I think often, you know, what's happening at the first meeting, you are getting one person interested and you are giving them the bullet pointed data points they're going to use to get other people interested. The second meeting is the first person that you met with has spent some social capital by getting their colleagues to now come and spend some more time with you, at least one other, right? That's usually an indicator that there's real interest. Uh, now your goal is to convince that person and to present more and surprise to the upside than what was there beforehand. Again, it's one of those things that like becomes ritualized, but there's actually data in doing the ritual well. Right. Uh, you know, good entrepreneurs will have news flow ready there for the second and the third and the fourth meeting. So they show up in the second thing and it's, hey, you know, last week this good thing just happened. And they show up a month later in diligence and say, hey, you know that thing where we were looking for that LOI? Well, these people find it. Some of that stuff may be pre-baked. You know what? That's not bad. Right. <laughs> that person is going to have to use those same skills with prospective employees, with prospective customers, prospective partners. They are demonstrating them before you. Not a bad thing. Uh, but I would think the difference is in the first meeting, you're convincing one person, the second meeting, you're convincing more than one person. And in those sort of, you know, follow on meetings, you know, I think the people are sometimes looking for more depth to the business plan, maybe financials that, you know, many, many, uh, maybe if you're in grad school with an idea, you've never done that before, right? Or or if you'd have been in government before, you maybe had never sort of fleshed out an entire business plan before. You know, Hudson, mm -hmm. uh, for you, so what was that experience like? getting ready for that level of diligence that, you know, assume I get a series of investors looking, looking into you after that initial meeting. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, certainly it was a learning process for me and for us. Um, and, and one thing that I would encourage is for entrepreneurs to kind of think, think of this as not kind of a binary. They like my idea. They don't like my idea, but, but, but think of it as a journey. Think of it as a treasure hunt where, even the no's that you get contain really valuable kind of clues to the next step. Um, so, right. you know, you should come out of every meeting, which may not be a fit for a particular investor with a series of questions about, okay, if it's not work, if it doesn't fit for you, who, who would you recommend that I talk to? And, you know, ask them to make those introductions that gets you one step closer to the investor who it is a fit for. Um, and I guess the other thing that I would say is just, you know, in terms of the follow-up, totally agree with, with Matthew in, you want to show momentum, you want to show that, that, um, forward progress, um, but you also want to, um, really listen carefully to the feedback that you're getting and be responsive to it. So in our case, right. Um, we had a product that was was you know more or less proven. We had some demonstration of of adoption. Our market size was way too small, and and one of our investors, um, actually CEV Clean Energy Ventures, said that to us. They said, "We like what you're doing, but you got to think bigger." Um, and initially, it's your baby, and you don't like any criticism of your right. baby. And and right. so you know the initial response is, "No, no, we we've studied this. We you know, um, but." But we really kind of went back to the drawing board and for, for us, um, you know, we, we realized one model of the market size is, you know, using our technology almost like a band-aid on a handful of highly congested uh, lines 
which has a certain market size implication. But, but we then realized no low cost sensors, if we look at the broader trends, these should be on every high voltage line above a certain threshold. And, and we call it our metal plant, which stands for monitor every transmission line. Um, and, and realized um, that there's an incredibly kind of positive cost benefit ratio for um, deploying it system wide. And that, of course, increased our market size legitimately right. by about 5x. Um, and we were able to go back to CEV and say, hey, we really took to heart your, your input. And, um, and, and they said, we'd love it. And where do we sign? That's great. <laughs> I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you're not ready to sort of be humbled through this process and take, take, your, uh, take your beatings through some of these meetings and be willing to adjust, you probably shouldn't be. Uh, out having these having these conversations. Um, yep. So many great questions coming in. I apologize, we don't have time to get to all of them. We have sort of a limited window here to close, and I sort of wanted to ask sort of a final closing round. To, to and we'll start off with Marty and sort of go around the horn. You know, if you had sort of any final key piece of advice uh, for the entrepreneurs uh, listening today, what would you uh, what would you tell them? I think all the advice been given so far is on you know, coachability, be prepared to be resilient, you know, show true grit and that's how you will succeed, but also be prepared. So one final note to follow up on this, what happens next, there will be due diligence and each investor will come up with a different flavor. You need to be able to respond typically within 48 hours if you want to show you're serious. So I would just really encourage you to set up your own uh, digital back room as we call it and we train a lot of our entrepreneurs, just be ready for that, update the information. Um, Matthew loved the, hey, I just did a call like this yesterday where they said, here's the latest thing since I talked to you one week ago. Super powerful, update your materials, um, be ready and um, grow thick skin. Yeah, that's great. Good. Thanks, Marty. Matthew, I asked the same question. I think the key thing to remember about all of this um, is that it's largely psychological. Um, you know, Marnie and I have one thing in common I didn't know until our intro and that we both studied neuroscience. People behave differently when they think they're at the top of a pecking order or the bottom of a pecking order. You know, they're really sort of well done experiments where you have, uh, you know, the captain of the football team now be at the bottom of a dominance hierarchy and he acts like it and vice versa. And I think one of the things that can be challenging, it was for me, right? You know, when a much younger and significantly uh, less gray haired Matthew was raising venture money for Lux Research in the mid 2000s, I thought that venture investors were magical superheroes from outer space, capable of things I was not. And I walked into those meetings uh, very deferential. And at every turn, that illusion was shattered. Right. And I realized <laughs> fragile humans are all the world can hold. Uh, and that there was as much uncertainty and insecurity on the other side of the table, just about different things. Right. And the minute that I sort of realized that and started thinking about those meetings is just two smart people having a conversation with an information asymmetry between them. Right. But not a smarter, dumber, faster, slower dynamic, just different. Yeah. I think, you know, you begin to approach those things with much more confidence and that shows, you know, that's a big predictor of fundraising success. Right. That's great feedback. And Hudson, how about yourself if, having gone through this experience? Any uh, advice for the entrepreneurs? Well, if I can do it, anybody can. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I mean seriously, we made, we made a ton of mistakes and um, uh, and and somehow managed to get through the process. Um, I mean, the other note of encouragement I would just say is I, I know it can be daunting to think of the, the the COVID crisis that we're all in right now and and maybe a temporary chilling effect, but um, I I think this is illustrating the need for the solutions that clean tech entrepreneurs out there are working on to solve the much bigger problem of, of climate change, climate resilience. And, and there's a ton of money out there that, that is hungry for moving out of oil and gas and moving into the kind of solutions that, uh, that you guys are working on. So stay at it, develop a thick skin and uh, success. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I... I always tell folks to be ready for the, the roller coaster because you, you're gonna have the most amazing day of your life and the worst day of your life probably all at the same time sometimes and be ready to to, to, to for that roller coaster as you, as you ride it. 
Um, thank you. Thanks to everyone for the amazing conversation. I wanted to thank the New England Clean Energy Council and, and Navigate for, for helping to put this on. Um, as always, you can get more experts only podcasts uh, at, at cleancapital.com. We're always looking for interesting thoughts. So please feel free to send them our way. And thanks to everyone who joined and the sort of phenomenal questions that, that came in. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to NYSERDA and Clean Capital for making this podcast possible. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would be great if you could please provide us your feedback by completing the survey we have in the podcast description. You can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts and check our NECC YouTube channel as well. We look forward to sharing our upcoming 2021 podcasts. Stay tuned at NECC.org.